I'm Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. Our Conversations podcast features in-depth interviews with innovative leaders from business, entertainment, and nonprofits. Now is the time to rethink, reinvent, and renew yourself and your business. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad to welcome Tom Bozo to our Conversations podcast. Convinced there had to be a better way to define success, in 2012, Tom left his role as CEO of Aramark Uniform and Career Apparel Group. While considering his next venture, he started volunteering at Homeboy Industries, the largest and most successful gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world, based right here in Los Angeles, an organization I'm proud to say that City National Bank supports. What started as a way for him to give time to a worthy cause turned into his quote-unquote second act, becoming the first ever CEO of Homeboy Industries. Tom went from a 26-year lucrative career in corporate America to becoming volunteer unpaid CEO of a nonprofit built on compassion, kinship, empathy, and social justice. Most recently, Tom has added author to his long list of accomplishments, publishing his first book in 2022. I'm pleased to have Tom join us today. Thank you so much for being here, Tom. Uh, Kelly, appreciate you having me. So, I, uh, Tom, I want to start by going back a bit, talk about your career before Homeboy. As I said in the intro, you spent 26 years as a top exec at companies, including Aramark, Galls, and Weirgard. So tell us a little bit about your early professional days, what type of roles you started in, and how that evolved to, to having you lead major companies. Yeah, sure. So I, I went to graduate school, and I have a, a master's degree in mathematics, if you can believe that. And uh but I sort of wanted to do business. And so I, I came out of graduate school and I started uh, all those years ago at a, at a Boston-based company that was a mail order catalog. So it was back in the 80s and 90s. Where <laughs> and nobody remember was, those, right? Nobody remember those things, <laughs> but it's, it's not all about social media marketing and all that, but it was direct marketing and look for a math guy. It was a great job because you, you knew how many catalogs you mailed out, you know how many people <laughs> ordered and you can do all sorts of statistical modeling after that. And and it was a family-run business, and it was a really a rocket ship type of thing. It, when I joined, it was about fifty million dollars, and we grew to three hundred million dollars uh, along the way. Uh, and at, at at the peak, then it was acquired by Aramark Corporation. So, a, 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 at that time, a six billion dollar uh, corporation. Uh, and so then I got to I got the benefit of sort of growing at a fast pace, learning how to grow a company in a fast paced environment, a family-run business, and then. The, Corporation came by and I got to learn what it's like to do run a company in a very professional, organized, heavily resourced type of uh, environment. And so my career kept growing. You know, I learned early on, uh, I had a mentor and he said, Tom, if you can demonstrate how you make money from behalf of the corporation, you're going to you're going to have a long career. And so I was always pretty good. about. I had a sense of how to how to run an organization where people people succeed as a team, but also you're, you're delivering for the shareholders and kept getting promoted up and eventually becoming an executive vice president for a $13 billion corporation with over 200,000 employees worldwide. That's a huge, 13 billion, 200,000 employees across the world is is a challenging situation. Running a major company like that is always challenging. Look at the times we're going through now. Many are, many are going through that. When you, when you think back, what are some of the biggest you faced and how did you How'd you get through them? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's for folks in the in the corporate world, it's always about what's the culture, right? And how do you, if, as you're a growing company, how do you maintain culture? A large part of that is, particularly at Aramark, we're a service company, managed services. So we did, uh, we picked up and cleaned uniforms, we swept floors, we, you know, served hot dogs at stadiums and food at, at banks and food at uh, 
uh, hospitals and all. So we have no special technologies or patents. And so how we got our next type of business was based upon a reputation. And then so thereby how well you did your work was what you got your next business and how well you did your work was really on what type of management you had in place. And so there's a lot of like leadership lessons and efforts and leadership training we had for sure at Aramark. And what also made Aramark uh, very different is we, for many of my years, we were a privately uh, owned company, employee owned. So by the time we went public in 2001, 93% of our company was owned by employees. And so it had a tremendous effect that we put stock ownership down really low in the levels, all levels. And so being owner manager, sort of how you had a different mindset than just being a, a professional manager at a company. And so at, when we went public, it was a liquidity event for a lot of the old timers, they left, but then how do you kind of keep that company growing? <clears throat> and I just want to round out this question to say, but one of the things I was I struggled with, which eventually led me to Homeboy, was sort of this, this balance that well-run companies sort of balance shareholder interest customer interest and employee interest, right? And so if you can keep three in balance and it's a great place to work for employees, that's a hallmark of a great company. 2008 recession came along, which sort of whacked a lot of companies and a lot of companies took it on the chin. And so, you know, the challenge of running a $2 billion business, which I ran, was how do you kind of shrink so quickly overnight uh, and how do you kind of maintain the morale going forward? And we had just gone public uh, the prior, excuse me, we, just gone, we were a public company and we just gone private again that prior year. And so in that time of going private, the recession comes along and we had made commitments to, to Wall Street in that sense. And so I remember having a seminal moment for me and I talk about it in my book. I remember December 2008, I remember talking to the chairman and where I was saying that our, my businesses were going to deliver $150 million of profit, right? Not revenue, profit, which missed by about $10 million. And I remember the chairman saying, it's not good enough. You got to get the last $10 million. I knew at that point, oh my gosh, I know what it's going to take to find that last $10 million, that I was going to have to sort of let people go, that we're going to need once the recession's over, that the people who dedicated their life to the business all of a sudden are going to have their lives disrupted. And I, listen, I'm not saying this as some starry-eyed sort of idealistic person. I've been in the corporate world for a long time, but it's like all of a sudden it sort of was a gut check about, oh, what the... When push came to shove, sort of employees came up second in that situation. And so which put something in my brain about how do you, how do you, can you run businesses where employees aren't always second, that you can kind of really balance it out. And that's kind of, that was what sort of put in my brain to sort of eventually go find something and do something else. Something else. That's interesting. Cause I think, I think you're right to start with culture and team, right? Cause that's, that was a famous quote, right? Culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. I think that was Peter Drucker. Yeah, yeah, Peter Drucker. That, yeah, which I think sure. is true. Yeah. And keeping those in balance is a pretty difficult thing. So it's interesting that you you uh, you had that one moment where you kind of opened your eyes and thought about, is there something different? So that's when, after that, you left, right? Aramark and you started to volunteer started. at Homeboy. How did you do that? How did you hear about Homeboy? How did that, how did you get motivated to start volunteering? Yeah. Yeah, so like, 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 look, I, I'm a big believer in, in capitalism. I, even today, I, at 10 years at being a homeboy, I go off and give speeches. I, I lead the speech off by saying I'm a committed capitalist. And usually it <laughs> runs across the audience. <laughs> right. But again, well, well run companies are good for our society. Right. And so, uh, and, and part of that, and there's a lot of good oriented people out there in, in well run companies, you give back. So for many years uh, on the board of Salvation Army of Los Angeles, 
And a fellow board member, uh, when he found out I had left the corporate world, uh, invited me uh, to have lunch at the Homegirl Cafe. And his, his goal was to get me involved on the board. And I'm having lunch at Homegirl Cafe right down here in Los Angeles. And, uh, and I'm looking around and I'm seeing how the employees, who are all former gang members and felons, are working with customers. They're, they're interacting with the customer. I can see how they're getting along with each other as employees. They're working as a team. They seem to be enjoying work. And to me, back to my philosophy about well-run businesses or where employees want to work and move their lives forward. And so I'm thinking, wow, in the context of a job, Homeboy's helping people that have the most terrible circumstances move their life forward. And I'm also sitting there eating lunch knowing, looking around, I would have never hired any of those folks in my corporate role because of their felony, because of that too on their face, because of the gang they were in. And yet here's his workforce that's doing a really good job. And so when they when they asked me to get involved at the board level, I was intrigued enough about the company and the organization to get involved, but I had done enough board work. I had time on my hands. I wanted to see if my business skills could be used in a different way to help people. So I, so I started volunteering. The Homeboy Industries had, at that time had seven social enterprise businesses, and uh, they needed somebody with some gray hair and business experience that, that the businesses were hemorrhaging money, really costing the nonprofit side of the organization. So they needed somebody to come in to help out, uh, get the business back on their feet again. And so that's what I was doing. I started sort of being in charge of the Homeboy businesses. I, mean, I should explain what Homeboy is about. So Homeboy yeah. started about 35 years ago, uh, Jesuit priest, Father Greg Boyle. His first stop was at Dolores Mission in uh, East Los Angeles, the poorest parish in all the archdiocese. Back in the early 90s, it also was the epicenter of gang violence in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles County. And unfortunately, Los Angeles is still the gang capital of the country. And so uh, Greg hit upon this notion, he wanted to get young men out of gang life. And he hit upon this simple notion that if you get them a job and pay them so they have enough money for food and shelter, they're not going to go running with the gang for money, for food and shelter. And so it started as a jobs program, then moved into having them work for us. And so today, fast forward, uh, we have 400 people come in each day, uh, part of our paid program. We pay them to work on themselves. <laughs> we have mental health counseling. Uh, we have GED. We have charter high school. We have anger management courses, domestic violence courses, NAAA, all those things. Um to help them heal from their trauma. So they spend most of the day working on that. A few hours a day, they're washing windows and, 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 and sweeping floors. After a certain number of months, the, those few hours move into our social enterprise businesses, our cafe, our bakery, and, and whatnot. And but they were still paying for them to work on themselves, and we get a little bit of work productivity out of them. People with us for 18 months, near the end of their 18 months, they're more, working more full-time into our businesses. At the end of that time, we then get them jobs outside of Homeboy. Uh, we do keep some of them and they grow into our management. There are mentor, mentors, navigators, case managers. Almost all our managers and supervisors in our businesses are all former clients as well. A big part of this was being around Father Greg, the founder of Homeboy, Jesuit priest, to me a living saint. And so a couple months later, as the whole organization was going through a financial crunch, a couple board members suggested to Father Greg, hey, maybe you should ask Tom to come in and, and, and run it. And uh, he asked me, and uh, and listen, the, just the, the opportunity to be in the same orbit as Father Greg, I couldn't pass that one up. Not that I thought I knew anything about running a nonprofit, but I threw caution to the wind and said yes. And you just jumped up. So it was, it was basically inspiration of Father Greg that made you take that leap? Oh, for sure. Because it's like, how do you... 
even in my f- quick two months there before he asked me, it was like it, helping people change their life around. All our folks at Homeboy are victims of complex trauma. And in the context of a job, we're helping them have structure and heal and become resilient with all the other wraparound services. And so, and then listening how how Greg talks about people and, and God loving all of us, no matter what, and this whole concept of kinship and compassion in a workplace was so intriguing to me that I said, yeah, I want to go learn more about that. And did you, what, what of, are there certain skills from the corporate side that you felt translated or was, did you have to change them? Yeah, listen, uh, this is, well, this is one of my uh, things. There's many skills that come from the corporate side that are needed in um, in nonprofit world. And just go back to thinking about what I was saying about, uh, as an example, Aramark and probably where you all, you all are and the listeners are, as like what does corporate America do well? They invest in its training and leadership training and management training, and they have you know leading edge theories. All those apply to nonprofit world. Not many nonprofits have that opportunity of having executive coaches of having being sent off to business school and learn new techniques. So even at a very grassroots-based, mission-driven organization, the staff still needed strategic orientation, having the right people in the right job, being clear about what the expectation of those roles are, and then kind of navigating through. So so what sort of makes money for your business? What didn't? And then additionally, how do you go find money from government? How do you find money from from donors? And all those skills you learn at running an organization. All of those can be applied because you want it to be sustainable, right? The goal is something different, but you still need it to be able to operate as sustainable. And you you mentioned you you sat in that cafe. By the way, you have to give me the cookie recipe at some point because they're the best cookies in in the (laughs) world, right? Particularly those jelly ones. I absolutely love them. But but having been on the corporate side, you know, you you mentioned you wouldn't have necessarily hired anybody that was actually working in in that business as you sat there that day. So what do you, and and there's lots of different ways to think about it, but what are some of the barriers you think that keep corporate America from really being able to help some of the the really marginalized communities? Yeah, um, I want to, it's an excellent question. I appreciate you asking. And I also want to add to the part of the question is, is my, what I've learned here. Listen, poverty rate in America has been the same for 45 years. Poverty rate, same 12 to 13% of our populations in poverty. And so clearly we as a society have not solved that, right? And uh, have not fixed it. And yet, you know, I saw this in my first few months at Homeboy. I still see it 10 years later at Homeboy. Homeboy has a way of helping people who, not just in poverty, but people who are been incarcerated, People have been victims of complex trauma. People have no support structure around when they get out of the jail system. We help those people heal, transform, and become contributing members of our society. And a, a through line is a job, right? And so, so my point is, what, and this really drove me to partially write the book, is like, come on, business world. We can, we can make a difference. Let's hire people. Who, let's hire the working poor, right? Because if we hire the working poor, that's how you get people out of poverty. You get them decent jobs, quality jobs, and they have upward upward skills. I've seen a homeboy, people who have never worked before in their life, come in. And then listen, we'll get to the healing part. And that's in the significant part. But on just the jobs part, once they become more resilient, they do a great job. This workforce at homeboy is just as good as any workforce I've ever had, uh, for sure. And what I'm saying to corporate America is, Hey, let's make this kind of maybe it's a pledge. 
like 15% of all our next hires, that's higher from the working poor. And the key though is provide support services. You have to manage them differently. You can't just wag your finger at them and say, work harder because they have all the challenges involved. And we, we can talk about that in more of time. But my point is business world can make a difference. I mean, we even see that with, you know, the focus on hiring veterans. It's a different job from where they were. And so they need some support on the transition side. So we should dig into that more. That would be interesting. But but I wanted to also, you, you've you now been over 10 years at Homeboy, which is incredible going from a volunteer there and, and you're still going strong. You're still incredibly uh, passionate about it, I can see. So how when you sit, step back and say how how has it evolved you know when in in those 10 years what is what are some of the big changes or milestones that you've helped the organization achieve when you look back yeah let me first talk about the 10 years you know look i had all the when i came into homeboy and the board asked me to get involved and i wanted to make sure father greg was good with it all well, i had all the hubris of a corporate ceo <laughs> <laughs> i'll come in i do this for 6 months maybe a year help fix them up move on, right? <laughs> Here I am 10 years later. Because yeah, you just fall in love with the place because it's about kinship, compassion, and being in the community of folks and our clients all around us and being in their life, how they can change their life forward is pretty is pretty extraordinary. And so where we are, as I'm back to you, a little bit of your question, when I came in, we're, we're $11 million organization. We're now a $35 million a year organization. We raise we I'm quickly say we spend 35 million and we raise 35 million. So we're, we're a nonprofit, <laughs> right? We stretch every nickel. Um, we help 10,000 people a year come through our doors with some type of service. Uh, there's still a need, uh, a massive need to help more and more people. Uh, I think what this pandemic has shown society is how many people live on the edge and margins of our society, unhoused, food insecure, you know, no clothing. So our board has encouraged us to, to double in size. And so we're now we're at where we're at today. They want us to double in size and impact again as, as we go forward. So that's sort of on the on the number side. But the thousands of people we've helped and changed their lives is is pretty extraordinary. And then the other key part about all this is uh, we've gone out of our way to hire from within. So now over two-thirds of our management team are former clients. Hmm. And that's so we put a big effort. So what I took from the corporate world was this issue of um, executive coaching and leadership training and managerial investment and brought that into Homeboy. And and uh, obviously we have a very diverse set of clients and now diverse management team, but having two-thirds of people with lived experience who it's going to make a big difference as we do our mission and really makes a difference in our future to keep our culture strong. That's and that's a great that's a great self-sustaining. Um, is there any kind of one moment that stands out as your proudest when you think back on the last 10 years of Homeboy? Oh, my gosh. It's, it's, it's not too many. It's not fair <laughs> to say. Yeah, too many. I, I just want to go back on the having um, people with lived experience grow through the management team and be promoted up through is is a proud moment because they've never listen. 90 percent of our folks never had a job outside ever. They come out of the prison system. So, so for society, think this is my personal day. We release tens of thousands of people out of the prison system every year in the state of California. And for society to think that when they leave prison, there's a spot for them. It's just nutty. It's like they've never worked anywhere before. It may be some government programs can help with a resume, but they're not, they have so many other challenges. They're not going to be able to get a job and sustain a job along the way. And so men uh, to see our folks kind of transform their life and now they become leaders. We so many people have modeled themselves after Homeboy. Each year we have a what we call our global homeboy network. There's a, over 150 organizations that have modeled themselves. And so 
they come and visit. And the proud moment I have is that as our team members, as our leaders stand up and talk about what they do, it just knocks my socks off because they're experts in this field. And you know, when you're in the when you're in a mission organization, human services, you're doing the work, you got you had them, not a lot of people patting you on the back. But then to see them stand on stage and actually explain to outsiders what they do, that's pretty that's pretty remarkable. And it's great. That has to be incredibly inspirational. All right. So so inspirational. In 2022, you wrote your first book. I'm saying first, because maybe there's another, um, <laughs> the uh, the homeboy way, a radical approach to business and life. And so in it, you give readers practical ways to address some of our most social issues and provide a new path for personal um, and business leadership. So I, I want to just, uh, first of all, tell everybody what inspired you to write this book. And then I want to talk about some of the key lessons in it. So, um, as I said, the, the chance to be around Father Greg and be part of Homeboy was too good to pass up. And so early on, we would have, which every day was called a council meeting, so leader, a meeting of the leadership team with Father Greg. And it's about not like setting company policy and agency stuff. It's about how do you help? Who are the problem folks? The problem is that who's having a problem? Which clients, we call them trainees, are having that problem? And then we brainstorm around how do we help? Whether it's baby mama drama, when there's a parole officer giving that person hassles, maybe they're they're falling off and they're, they're back testing positive on drugs. But so I would sit in these meetings and my head would almost like spin because I would listen to the someone describe the problem and I'd be thinking how I would solve it. And then I listened to how Greg says it and the others say, it. it's like, well, totally different. <laughs> and it's like, wow. And so I started realizing there's a different way of going to help people. And it's not about set, needing to worry about setting precedent for the organization. It's like, what does that person need today? And so I'm thinking to myself, oh, there's a lot to learn, pay attention. And so, you know, a couple of years and I started thinking about, well, if, if I was ever to go back into the for-profit world, what business lessons would I bring back from Homeboy? That was the impetus to sort of to write the book. And eventually, a number of years later, I said, listen, there's more than just about the business lessons is about it's about this con- radical concept of sort of compassion and kinship authentically, unrelentingly, and how that helps change people's lives going forward. And uh, those those I want to put that on paper and kind of speak to a younger me <laughs> from uh, out in the out in the audience, right? Try to put them to put, have them put it to work. So is that is that the key lesson? What are some of the key points get people to Go out and buy the book. Everybody should be reading the book. Yeah, everybody should be reading the book. You know, it's a lot of it's a lot of lessons about uh, um, human nature and about how to help people, and it's how to get over your own insecurities and your own kind of the squirreliness of our own brains to move it forward. You know, it sounds so cliche to say, but it is so true. Uh, you know, as Father Greg would talk about, um, we're all helped. We're all helped when we move to the margins to be in kinship with those. We're struggling. And it's not to move to the margins of being judgment, but it's move the margins and being in relationship. And so what I've learned, and particularly now as our I want to take more of a business focus, how to what it takes to employ what I've been calling the working poor of late and employ this population is a different approach. Let me try to quickly tell you this one story. Uh, so at Homeboy, we have um our bakery, artisan made bread, uh cookies. I so love I'm my cookies, cookies, my favorite bread. cookies. Right. And so it's artisan, which means handmade. And so uh, there's nothing better to break down people's sort of 
uh, rivalry with each other. So we have rival gang members, whether we're the rivals from different gangs, different cultures, different races. But when those guys have to stand shoulder to shoulder at the bread table and roll dough and get a certain amount of bread down, it really breaks it down. And so you can't demonize somebody in relationship with, which is a lesson number one for sure. All right. So we have a, we deliver bread to restaurants. We also have farmers markets. And let me tell you a story about George, one of our best farmers market sellers. Uh, and so he's a trainee. So I remember for, first six months there, I'm walking through the bakery and I hear George asking the bakery manager if he can have the weekend off. And you know, I'm trying to be the new guy, walk around, right? And get to know people. So I go up to George, hey, I heard you getting the weekend off. What are you going to go do? I'm like trying to be light about it, right? And he says, well, I'm going to go report in. And I, I look at him and said, report in? What's, what's that mean? He says, well, he's reporting to county jail on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So he came out of prison and he had debt. So people, that's the other nutty thing. People come out of prison with debt, not only restitution costs, they have court costs, roll officer costs, fines and fees. It's like for society to think, how do these guys come out of prison with debt? They can't make money in prison. And so what George did, he wanted to do it the right way, which we wanted to do. He didn't want to go back to his homeboys and his gang to ask for money. <laughs> He's trying to leave that. He didn't go to a loan shark. And so he, at that time, you can go to L.A. County, back in, report back in jail, and earn off time. So I walked away from that in the county. said, that's pretty amazing. That guy's doing it in a, in a very responsible way. Think about the whole weekend. I'm thinking, well, should I give him the money? Should I have loaned him money? Should I have done something different? I wasn't quick enough to understand all this. Find him on Tuesday. I, I, I mean, be, beeline, George had to go. And he looks at me. I can see the stress on his face. But also, when he came out of prison, he got custody of his two children, 10-year-old and an 8-year-old. And look, he's trying to leave gang life behind, which means he's leaving his family network behind because they were in gangs too. So the caregiver who was going to come watch his children couldn't make it. And so he still reported into county jail and left his 10-year-old, 8-year-old home alone in the apartment for three days. Just imagine the stress that any one of us as parents would go through. Okay, why do I tell the story? Well, quick answer this. Kid turned out okay. But the, the lessons are, it's like, oh, I can't. I mean, the choices our folks have to work for, have to face are just hard to imagine, hard to get your brain wrapped around and nothing in my life prepared me to kind of give him any advice. Not that he was asking for any advice, but I don't even know what I would do at that point. And the second thing is not to judge him, to, you know, because we all moved to you really left your kids alone, right? And that's what our brain thinks, but it's like, it's not to judge. And so the point I'm trying to make is that managing this type of workforce, you have to kind of think about it differently, not be judging. I mean, if, if they're somehow acting out of work, it's not because they want to or they're doing a bad job. There's something happening in their personal life. And that's the point about how do you, that's the, all these examples. So how do you kind of move this forward? How do you provide the support structure around to help people go through? So that's a big part of leadership lessons. A lot of lessons on sort of managing for diversity along the way. There's also a lesson, my own, my own journey, spiritual journey, which I learned from the homeboys as well is, was, I wish I would have known that as a younger man to, to follow my faith and follow my own journey more sooner. And that would, that would be helpful as well. Yeah, that's it's a, it's a, that's a powerful story because you don't I don't think people really know how hard it is coming out of, you know, especially leaving your whole best friends yeah. behind. Or even even this even the single yeah. mother who skips lunch every day cuz she can't afford money for yeah. diapers. Yeah. Right? It's the it's like this, these things happen over and over and over yep. again. Yep. And as you say it's something we can do something about. So let's talk about what's next. 
um, and go forward. So um, Homeboy Industries is around 30 plus years. And uh, the organization has been able to secure job training positions for 500 people annually. City National, we're all very, very proud to have been a supporter of Homeboy for many years. And and I certainly do. And I know our entire organization admires all the work you do in our communities, which is really important to us. Um, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the partnership and and what has that meant for Homeboy and what can we what else can people be doing that's like it? I'm glad you asked because I want to talk about it. Pandemic comes along. We had some money in the bank. Oh, my gosh. What we all remember was like in those first month. Who knew how long the pandemic was going to be? How much money? How was how long it would take us? And so the PP program was super important. So we knew how it was important. So we were working with our big bank, too big, too big to fail bank, and we were saying, "Listen, we need it. We need it." They said, "We got you covered. We got you covered. They got you covered." And then all of a sudden, now we can get into the detail. But that weekend came along. They fulfilled their quota with all their big customers. And left small businesses and nonprofits out on the side. It's like, ah, oh, here's another example of it's in some ways you can view it unconscious bias, but a bias against sort of how to help people, the working poor. I mean, it, it could have been that could have been a profile and courage for those executives to say, ah, we're gonna put our big customers on the same playing field as our small guys, and we're gonna kind of spread it out, spread it in some ways. Spread it out. But no, it didn't happen. And so we were left without, we were left on the outside. And so we scrambled around. Thankfully, someone knew enough of who you all are. We called you up and you and you put us in the queue and you got us a PPP loan, which was life-saving for us. I'm not saying that with hyperbole. It's like, can I see the impact? I wouldn't find, no, no matter what, but I see the impact on our people. And that was so important. So the, so the lesson was sort of work with a, a bank who understands us locally, more regional bank, local bank, however you want to frame it, it is. But it's like, not to be lost in this sort of a big behemoth. To me, it's also the, it's why I tell the story elsewhere too, is because, listen, I mean, we, there's always choices that business can make. And if you're only ever going to worry about the bigger customers, and if you're only ever going to making the most amount of money and not, and not value your impact on society and your local neighborhoods, that's going to be a problem. And society's never going to heal or get better. The corporations need to also look about how they play locally as well. Yep. And think about the impacts. And and I know everybody at City National was excited to help and happy we could. And I think it got everybody very, very focused on what the mission was, which um, which I think is um, has been great. So and wanting to volunteer and all sorts of things, which I think is also. Yeah, for sure. Then it leads to other things along those lines. And because and that's a little one of my, another one of my points is all this is like, Listen, if a hard charging business guy like me can kind of learn to soft, soften up and kind of move to move to people on the margin, nothing I know nothing about, but it's about having relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can do the same thing, and that's what yep. that's what we need. Yep, that's what you need. So, so let's look ahead. What are some of your goals and priorities for Homeboy for the future? Yeah, we want to keep helping people. You know, uh, as I say, each each and every week we. We have about 400 people on our payroll of our clients. Uh, each and every week, about 15 people interview. Uh, and to get an interview at Homeboy, it's, it's an interesting thing, which means you're a uh, bit incarcerated, which means you're affiliated with the gang and you test drug clean. And of those, we have a process of those 15. Uh, we sort of have enough money and space to take two of those 15. And we take the two who need us the most. We don't take the two most likely to succeed. And so, like, thankfully, we have a lot of gracious, generous donors who understand the value of what we do 
So only about 10% of our funding is from the government. So it's not like we have to meet some government funding criteria of what our success rate is. Listen, we have a tremendous success rate, but we take cases that are the least likely to succeed because they need us the most. And that comes right from Father Greg's, this is what we're here, here to do. And so we help those folks. And so my point is, why well, you asked about the future, we're only taking two of 15. There's still a lot more people who need help. And, the, and so we want to grow, we want to expand what we call our campus, our city block here, where we hope to do transitional housing right next door. Because what we don't do is we do all reentry services, but housing. And so we we have on the docket, a uh, on our drawing board, 148 bed facility. Uh, it's about a $20 million project. Uh, we've already raised 6 million. So the way we're going to do is 6 million of equity, 14 million of debt. And, uh, and this is because we pay our people, we know they can afford minimal rent. And so it all pencils out. And so we want to do uh, transitional housing in a private way, not not with public funds, although we need the city to grant over the land to us mm -hmm. along the way. <clears throat> Another goal for us more for your business audience is a couple of years back, we created the Homeboy Venture and Jobs Fund. And so it's a $15 million venture fund to actually invest in homeboy type businesses. And so a good example is about five years ago, four, four years ago, we acquired a uh, electronic recycling company. And so think about it, a nonprofit acquired business, right? We acquired yeah. a, a electronic recycling company. State of California has all these rules, how to properly dispose of your your phones and your computers and your TVs. Mm -hmm. um, and so we think there's a lot of upside there. So that business, we started about half a million dollars, now about $3 million business, and we want to keep growing it. And so that's a good example of if we have some, if we have seed investments, we can actually grow and, and have more businesses. And the end result is to have sustaining businesses that provide quality jobs, that have good landing spots. Because, you know, it's quality job is a living wage, good benefits, predictable scheduling, upward mobility. And, and that is so key. And we know we do that really well in our businesses. And we want to create more homeboy businesses. So we've already raised $12 million of the $15 million for that venture fund. And how about, I mean, you're having such a tremendous impact on LA and you said that you also um, work with other, other homeboy like organizations across the country. Are there any other communities or areas where you want to, you're thinking about expanding the reach? Yeah. So we're going to, um, we're going to stay in LA County because still every week, 15 people come in from LA yeah, County. There's <laughs> enough to do. Enough to do. Uh, but we, we definitely share what we do openly. Uh, and again, a lot of other organizations model themselves after us because you know, it's, a, it's a fundamental philosophy that gang activities is, is pretty local thing. And so the dynamics of a local gang, you need those leaders from within to kind of really uh, help heal those communities. Take our style of doing it, and for sure, uh, that happens. Uh, and so that's the way we see that growing. But, you know, in L.A. County, it, we're more on the forefront of this concept of alternatives to incarceration. You know, then L.A. County the county supervisors voted not to rebuild the men's central jail, which means you need more diversion programs and more alternatives to incarceration. And in my way of framing it, homeboy's been doing alternatives to incarceration for 35 years. <laughs> and so uh, we see um, hopefully in the future partnering with more local organizations to provide more of that programming in place. Because listen, we know what it's like to, it's hard to get people out of gang life, but once you do, we know that they can become contributing members of our of our society. And Homeboy has a tremendous success record at that. Definitely does. And that's that's where you get the sustainability of this. But what advice, Tom, do you have for any individual or organization that want to have a positive impact in their communities 
mean, particularly working with different types of marginalized populations like you do, you must really understand those gang, you know, is there a certain trust that you've built over time or what other advice would you, would you have for them? Well, there's certain trust we build over time for sure. But I would think though, the, the first part of your question <clears throat> about um, advice to folks in other organizations, it's I, and this is what I'm a little bit preachy about, I suppose, but organizations need help. Nonprofits need help. Right. And so whether it's a, a volunteer day, but oftentimes like when I talk to uh, companies, I said, listen, you know, we're a nonprofit. We're good about our human services mission. But you know what? We need marketing help. So if you have a marketing team that could kind of donate hours each and every month, that'd be great. If you have if you have HR professionals who can kind of help us and give us the latest HR rules-based um, knowledge, perfect. And so it's like figuring out how do you actually partner up in a, in a in a consistent way over a longer period of time is definitely is what the nonprofits need along the way. And don't feel like it's not your responsibility. That's the other thing. It's like uh, I'm a big believer now we all need to step forward. We do. If you don't invest in your communities, nobody's going to be successful in the long run. And I think, and also you have a lot of fun doing it. That's a great way to to use your expertise to help an organization you care about and that's doing positive work. And Tom, I want to thank you for you and your whole team for everything you're doing. It's, uh, it is really inspirational. I'd love to encourage everybody to go buy Tom's book because it's, uh, it has some really valuable lessons in there and, and go visit the cafe and pick up some of my favorite cookies. I, I guarantee you're going to love them. So Tom, thanks for being with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll subscribe to Conversations so you'll never miss an episode. We have lots of great guests this season who will inform and inspire you.